science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about making new friends. Over the course of 2018, of course, Story Collider has made a lot of new friends. We've been proud to host nearly 300 storytellers on our stages this year and 59 shows all across the country, Canada, the UK, and New Zealand. Oh, and of course, Berlin, Germany. Almost forgot. (laughs) Thank you so much to everyone who has shared their stories with us, and thank you to the thousands of folks who've attended our shows and who've listened to the stories on the podcast for listening and bearing witness and laughing and crying as necessary. We really appreciate it. And so now, of course, we have two more stories for you this week about unexpected friendships. Our first story is from Seth Cottrell. It was originally produced for a show in partnership with Springer Nature at the joint mathematics meeting in January 2018. But this version was recorded in May 2018 at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles. The theme that night was insights. So, uh, a few years ago, I found myself in the middle of the desert, desperately trying to answer the simplest question anybody had ever asked me. And the guy asking the question, he had these, these long dreadlocks, and he was wearing an old beat-up T-shirt, and uh, nothing else. <laughs> and his question was, why? Now, listen, I know exactly what you're thinking. It's a really good question. Now, at, at the time, I, I couldn't answer it immediately. I was a little, um, I'll say I was distracted. <laughs> but uh, uh, what I'd like to do tonight is maybe put that question in a little bit of context and take another running leap at answering it again. Uh, now, if you've ever heard of, of Schrodinger's cat or uh, action at a, uh, spooky action at a distance or entanglement, any of the, the really weird stuff from quantum mechanics, that's what I do, and it's a lot of fun. I'm a quantum information theorist, and uh, I, got, I got started down this, this dark and treacherous road because uh, one of my deepest passions all my life has been finding somebody who's an expert or just knows more than I do about whatever and just pelting them with questions. Uh, my dentist is, well, the dentist who still returns my phone calls is a saint. Uh, <laughs> Uh, now, when I was in high school, I figured that all, uh, all expertises were kind of equivalent. So when, uh, when one of my school counselors asked if I'd like to join her and a, a group of students for a spirit vision, I said, I got a lot of questions. <laughs> so uh, she claimed that uh, you could enter a meditative trance and then you could talk to, um, well, just about anything. And uh, uh, they whales and wolves would be able to answer your questions about the universe at large. Now, the first claim turned out to be pretty true. You really can enter these states of mind where you feel like you're talking to dogs and whatnot. Uh, The second claim turned out to be just totally false. I mean, Coyote never knew anything that I didn't know. And I mean basic stuff like... like, What's for lunch? Or where did I lose my keys? I mean, nothing at all. So, 
So when I, uh, I was a little disillusioned after that. So, so when I started hearing about all of the, uh, the crazy predictions of, of modern physics, you know, if, if something goes fast, it shrinks and particles can be in multiple places at the same time, I was a little incredulous. Uh, but it turns out that physics is a little bit different from spirit visions. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, you, can, you can keep asking questions, and, and if you're asking a physicist, and they're even decently responsible about it, they'll never say things like, you must search within yourself, or trust me. They'll say, well, listen, just try it yourself. And that is, that is too damn tempting to pass up. Um, now, uh, many of you may realize this already, it turns out that one of the difficulties of physics is uh, you gotta learn how to speak math. At least at first, that's a difficulty. Uh, you see, math is, is how our, our mental reach can exceed its grasp. It's, it's how we can take lots of tiny little insignificant things and build them up into something that's so profound it doesn't fit into our heads all at once. So, uh, so I studied math, obviously. Uh, and studying math ended up landing me in New York where I met my extremely New York friend, Spencer. Now, uh, he and I shared an office together, and we learned math for a couple of years, and so naturally, we got to be pretty close. And uh, so when he was invited to Burning Man, it just made sense that he would invite his most California friend to come along. <laughs> now, I cannot begin to describe how massively unprepared we were. I mean, I knew that it was in the desert, and there were some hippies, and that story from a minute ago about spirit animals might go over well. And while that... <laughs> While that is not untrue, it's, it's really not a complete picture at all. Um, I mean, when we were driving out, Spencer kept leaning his head out the window and smelling the air and, and saying, you know, it smells like flowers and sugar out here. And there is nothing. I mean, it is a salt flat. There is just nothing at all. And I'm smelling exactly that, nothing. And it suddenly occurs to me that I'm pretty sure what he was smelling was, for the first time in a long time, was not New York. <laughs> Now, if you've, if you've ever seen a native New Yorker in a Walmart for the first time, it's amazing. I mean, you can, you can almost hear David Attenborough in the back of your head. Um, so, so suffice it to say, we were massively unprepared, but our, our lack of preparedness really complemented each other. For, for example, I remembered to bring uh, instant coffee, which it turned out to be very important. And uh, Spencer remembered to bring uh, food and shelter and water. I mean, I would have figured it out <laughs> after a couple of days, but it was, it was really good that he was there. Um, now, Burning Man has a, a long-standing tradition of, of giving back to the, to the uh, uh, community. They call it a, barter, a, uh, excuse me, a gift economy. Basically, you show up and you give stuff to whoever happens to be wandering by, usually services instead of stuff. Uh, now, we couldn't fix your car, we couldn't cook a meal without a can opener, but what we could do is talk for a really long time about our research and what we had been studying. And I've been harassing people with questions for my entire life. I figured, hell, maybe other people want to do the same thing. So we picked a particularly empty patch of nothing, uh, nailed some wooden stakes into the ground, and duct taped a red piece of cloth to it for shade, and nailed up a little sign that said, ask a mathematician, ask a physicist, and just sat there to see if anything would happen. And 
I mean, the environment out there is exactly as unpleasant as you imagine it is. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of sun. Every time the wind blows, it kicks up these stinging dust storms. So everyone's wearing goggles and these, these gas mask filters. I mean, it's, it's awful. But, <laughs> but despite that, we had just this constant stream of people showing up at the booth and asking questions. And I mean, we met just this massive variety of people. We met, uh, I mean, geophysicists, engineers, a couple of naked people, some shamans. I mean, just ran the gamut. Uh, the very first person who showed up, first person, first day, had this uh, amazing juxtaposition of this very festive, happy hat and the saddest face I've ever seen in my life. This guy saunters up and he says, you guys, how do I find the love of my life? Had not seen that coming. Now, the obvious answer, the correct answer is, dude, you gotta go out and meet everybody on Earth. Now, presumably, one of those people is gonna be the love of your life. <laughs> now, he was a, a, a pretty reasonable, rational fellow, so he decided that that seemed a little bit unfeasible. So, we did a, a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation and agreed, yeah, no, that's probably not a best idea. But, luckily, we had some math in our corner. There's a, uh, a very old math problem called the secretary problem, or in, in this case, a little bit more applicably, the fussy suitor problem. <laughs> and uh, <it's, laughs> it allows you to uh, find the best of n things when you encounter them sequentially when you don't necessarily know what best is. And by the way, thing could be anything. It could be uh, pogs or beanie babies. <laughs> Or, or human beings with souls and life stories. I mean, anything at all. <laughs> so uh, uh, it turns out that there is an optimal solution. You, uh, you pick out N people, doesn't really matter who, pick out N people, date the first N over E of them, that's about the first third, and then immediately marry the first person after that third who you like better than any of those first people. Uh, by the way, this, this doesn't come up a lot, but it turns out that this algorithm works a hell of a lot better, firstly, if they say yes, and if they don't find out about the algorithm. <laughs> now, now, the thing is, this is not an ideal solution. It is merely the optimal solution. It works about uh, a third of the time. So I thought... This was kind of a disappointing answer. I expected him to be like, okay, and just wander off. But he just lit up. And I guess it, it just, it's, it's nice to know that the problems you have, other people have been thinking about them for hundreds of years and have come up with terrible answers. But they're still, they're still answers, and they're, it, it warms your heart. Um, we had um, some, some questions we found have been haunting people for just Decades. I mean, keeping them up at night and driving wedges into their marriages and, and turning bar bets violent. Um, one woman came riding by on her bike, and when she saw the sign over the booth, she was so excited, she got off of her bike without slowing down. She <laughs> ran up and sat down with us before the bike even fell over. And she just slides to a halt and just freezes. She gets her thoughts together, and she goes, okay. If the universe exploded out of a pinhead, why can we still see light from the Big Bang? This is a profound question. It was a good question. Uh, so the light she's talking about is the cosmic microwave background. It's this kind of dull glow that's coming at us from every direction all the time. 
And uh, her friends have been giving her shit about this for years and making fun of her and like, it's established science, you just don't get it, get smarter. <laughs> and, um, but, but she had a, a solid logical point. Her thinking was this, if light is the fastest thing in the universe, then if everything exploded out of a pinhead, then the, the matter in the universe right now should form kind of a ball and us and our sun and whatever we can see is kind of floating around in there somewhere. And the light, the initial light, should be forming a shell around that and moving out. It's moving away from us. We shouldn't be able to see it. Solid reasoning. Uh, well, it turns out that the resolution to this is the Bing Bang didn't happen in some particular place. It happened everywhere. And that expansion isn't because things are flying away from an explosion. It's because the space itself is expanding, which is freaky enough. <laughs> now, that's, that's a lot harder to convey than bang. And... Uh, Unfortunately for you, but fortunately for us, we had a, a bunch of dirt on the ground and some sticks. We could draw pictures and diagrams and debate it for a while. And, uh, and once she had a, a solid grip on the idea, she was so excited. I mean, she was ecstatic. She immediately started making lists of all the I told you so's she was going to be doling out. <laughs> and she gets on her bike and, and rides off. Uh, it, it, learning something new and profound and true about the universe, it, it's good for your soul, but it, it feels so much better when it means that somebody else is wrong. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's why half of people go into physics, is just so they can win bar bets. Uh, oh, oh, a couple of years ago, uh, we had a, a psychic come up to the booth, and I mean the whole nine-yard psychic. I mean, she was the, the kind of person you could see her coming from a mile away, and somehow you just know she was psychic. I mean, she had uh, the scarves and the bangles and the little eyeball tattoos all over the place. I mean, super psychic. <laughs> I came up and she said, um, listen, how do vibrations heal people? I said, you know, I'm glad you asked. Uh, uh, you can use a sonogram to look inside of people and, and see what's wrong. And there's some procedures for, for pulverizing kidney stones without surgery using, using sound. Now, you're a California crowd, so you're, you're probably already aware that she did not mean sound. <laughs> she, meant, uh, she meant vibrations in the good vibes sense. And, uh, of course, I didn't mean healing energy when I was talking about sound, but... The thing is, we got to sit down and have a conversation. It was actually really nice. Uh, uh, she got to learn a little bit about sound, and, and who's that going to hurt? And uh, I got to learn a little bit about crystal healing, which is shockingly involved. Uh, she, had, she had 12 rings. For those of you who understand the pigeonhole principle, you know why that's funny. She had 12 rings with 12 different stones on them that all did something very specific that I can't begin to reconstruct for you right now. Uh, but I, I really like talking to people that I just categorically disagree with, if it's a friendly conversation. Uh, it, it really underscores the fact that um, what is true almost never has anything in common with what sounds true or even what's reasonable. Uh, I personally fervently believe that an incomprehensibly long time ago, the Earth was populated by giant bird monsters that all died out in a fiery death when a mountain fell on Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the things I've learned about quantum theory are so massively batshit, I don't even bring them up in public anymore. <laughs> so compared to that, believing that, uh, that tiger eye grows wealth and that uh, I think it was fractured quartz does a good job of storing positive energy, that's pretty tame. 
So when, uh, when a conversation starts to uh, swerve vibrational, so to speak, uh, it, it's, it's nice to be able to say, well, here's an experiment that demonstrates such and such, and, and here's the thinking behind this. Uh, in other words, try it yourself. Um, so to actually circle back to, uh, to my naked friend's question, why? Uh, well, I like to wander around in public uh, and just talk to people about uh, math and science and physics in uh, uh, public parks or subway cars or in the middle of the desert, if the case may be. And uh, uh, I do it because it, it humanizes the whole experience. We're not, we're not talking about these wild, eldritch symbols and abstraction. We're talking about here and now, this stuff, where we are. And it's not information being handed down from on high. It's, it's uh, a bunch of people regular people walking around arguing with each other about this big, crazy world. Now, all of us have questions. Most of us feel a little bit embarrassed to ask them because we always feel like we're going to be stupid. But the people around you have questions, and you have questions, and you may as well turn to them. I mean, not right now, but you may as well turn to them and ask. And even if you don't know the answers, hell, you're talking about them. And that's pretty nice. But don't trust me. Try it yourself. Thank you for listening. That was Seth Cottrell. Seth received his PhD in mathematics from the current institute at NYU. His research is in quantum information, and he teaches at Southwestern College in San Diego. For 10 years, Seth has talked to complete strangers about math and physics and written about it at askamathematician.com. His new book is Do Colors Exist? and Other Profound Questions. Before we move on to our next story, I also want to thank the new friends that Story Collider had the opportunity to produce shows in partnership with this year, including, but not limited to, Denison University, Cambridge University, Math for America, Fermilab, the University of Connecticut, Iowa State University, Memorial Sloan Kettering, ASLO, Rockefeller Out Conference, the University of Manchester, Insight and SACNIS, the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science. Thank you so much. We loved working with all of you and getting to know your storytellers. And as we used to say in the Girl Scouts back in the day, make new friends and keep the old. One is silver and the other gold. It's true and it rhymes. Uh, So I feel like it's important to point out that we've also enjoyed our continued partnerships with our old friends, folks such as Springer Nature, Boise State University, the American Geophysical Union. Thank you so much for these ongoing relationships that we've been so happy to have with all of you. Uh, We have loved getting to hear your stories. So here's to these friends and to making more new friends in 2019. Just imagine the chorus of Auld Lang Syne playing in the background right now. Our next story today is from Joseph Mendelssohn. It was recorded in June 2018 at the Highland Inn and Ballroom in Atlanta. The theme that night was shakeups. Well, as you heard, I'm a herpetologist, and it it appears that around first grade I figured that out, and nothing ever, ever changed, right? So I had a lifetime goal at age eight or whatever that was, and a plan around age 30, something like that. But um, so I grew up obsessed with these things. And uh, 
learned about them, caught them, all this sort of thing. And by the time I'm in high school and, and college, I'm reading these monographs of these people that just knew so, written by these people, knew so much about a group of lizards or a group of frogs or a, an area on the planet or something. And I knew I had to be that person. I had to be that person that documented a part of the world that people hadn't documented before to find species unknown to science, right? And then I got my opportunity after college. So my first year of graduate school in 1989, my advisor arranged to send me to a remote coffee plantation in Guatemala to do exactly that. So the, the Mayans had been living there for millennia, of course. So the, the place was populated, but the, uh, but the entire slope of the mountain range called the Sierra de las Minas had never been documented biologically before. So my job was to document the reptiles and amphibians. This was it. This was my dream come true. And so I spent the entire winter studying the biology of everything I could find about Guatemala and especially that area. Of course, there wasn't much about that. And then um, uh, the day before the trip, literally the day before the trip, my advisor comes up and hands me some paper topographic maps of the area. And I said, these are great. I've looked everywhere. I haven't been able to find anything like this. He goes, yeah, they're illegal. <laughs> and he said, don't let anyone know you have these, right? Because they're going to assume that you're going to give them to the insurgents in the war. There's a war going on. Um, and so, don't let anyone know you have them, don't let anyone see them, and when you come back, don't bother bringing them back, just burn them. Okay? And then as he walks out of the room, the last time I saw him for four months, he, he points at my boots, he goes, oh, and get rid of those uh, military-looking boots you always wear, they look too much like military. He said, go, go get something like a tourist would wear. So hours before my flight, I went to REI and bought these brightly colored hiking boots. Assuming they would fit, you know, well for the entire summer. And I fly down there with all my gear, long, awkward conversation on how I got out to the coffee plantation. And I got there, and I wasn't expecting a parade to welcome me or anything like this, right? But I, uh, I assumed that somebody knew I was coming. <laughs> and the truck stops, and I look around, and someone kind of, the driver's kind of goes, like this, oh, I forgot a really important point about all this, and that is um, I didn't speak a word of Spanish, <laughs> right? What could go wrong, right? Uh, the driver kind of pointed, and, and, and I thought, okay, this is it. I started taking my stuff off. I'm like, here, he's like, okay. Then they drove off, and then a, a woman that I assumed was a cook for kind of a main house kind of thing I saw was the only one who seemed to have any idea who I was, and she pointed to this it wasn't a room, it was like a cinder block alcove, and that was my space. It didn't have a door or anything. That was my, that was my home for the summer. And that was it. And I sat around expecting someone to say hi, maybe show me around a little bit, something like that. Nothing, nothing. So the next day, I start just wandering around this coffee plantation, looking for snakes and lizards and things like this. That's what I do. And I found a few things. And I realized real quickly that speaking Spanish wasn't the problem, because most of the people there also didn't speak Spanish. They spoke Quechi Maya, the local dialect, which, of course, I didn't speak either, and they didn't speak Spanish either. So I'm double lost here on, on communications. And so I'm trying to be as friendly as I can, and I'm pantomiming, grabbing things, looking for things, right? Um, when I had something in a container, I would show them a, a, a lizard or a frog or a snake or something and say, like, you know, pantomime, looking for these things. And aside from the obvious communication fiasco, right, the, um, the other problem I realized real quickly is that virtually no one would talk to me or even look at me. 
So I'd walk down trails and I, I'd, I'd see people come down the trail and invariably the same thing would happen. They'd stand to the side and stare straight at the ground and wait till I passed. If I stopped and tried to say hello in Spanish or anything else, uh, they would just stare at the ground until I left and then they would get on the trail and walk again. So nobody would talk to me. That was unnerving to say the least. And this went on for a month. And then I was finding animals and doing the best I could, doing this sort of thing, uh, unnerved in the entire time. And I finally realized, I said, I've got to get off of the plantation and get higher up on the mountain for my surveys, you know, for, what, for my work I'm supposed to be doing. And I couldn't figure out how to get up there. And when I tried to ask people, I got the impression that you can't go up there. And then one day I found a trail that... Um, I hadn't seen before. So I took the trail up and I go up and I'm, I just go straight up the side of the mountain. This is perfect. And I get up there and there's a village up there I didn't know about. It wasn't on my illegal maps, right? <laughs> there was this little encampment of the village at the end of this trail. And the second I saw it, I could tell these people aren't from around here. I didn't know where they were from, but they're wearing the, the traditional super brightly colored hand-woven Guatemalan indigenous clothing that no one down at the bottom of the coffee plantation was wearing. And then the most amazing thing happened. They were nice to me. <laughs> they came up and were, we couldn't speak at all, of course, but they were uh, smiling and pointing at things and I'm showing them things and realize everybody in rural Guatemala has a machete. So everybody has a machete. I had a machete, right? <laughs> so we're comparing machetes and things like this. And, I somehow got across that I would like to come back here, and I felt welcomed, and then I, I went back down the mountain, and I packed up all my gear, and I, I came back up the next time I possibly could, and I, I somehow got their implied permission that I could set up a little camp outside of their village. I didn't want to bother them, so outside of their village, I set up a little tent and a stove, and the first night at, um, I'm making my dinner, I boiled some rice, and I had this whole cluster of men and boys standing uncomfortably close to me. <laughs> I'm sitting on a stump with my boiled rice, you know, trying to offer rice. No one wanted any rice. And they just sat there staring at me the entire time. And I ate my rice. And then when I was done with my rice, they all went away. And then, uh, then one of them came back and, and gave me two snakes that he'd killed in the cornfields with this ever-present machete that day. Um, tragic end for those snakes, but really important specimens for a, a collection. So I was really grateful. And these were interesting snakes, too. They're not something you see every day. And then I sat down, and then everything was beautiful for the first time ever. Right? I'm sitting on this stump, and literally someone down the village was playing a marimba inside a hut. So there's this music going. I watched the sunset, and I realized this is the first time I've been relaxed and happy. At this point, I was at the two-month mark. Um, and so I went out at night with my headlamp looking for frogs. That's what, that's what I do, right? <laughs> and I was finding really interesting things. I came back, and the next night they brought me more dead snakes from the cornfields and stood around me uncomfortably white, my, my rice. <laughs> and then, I, then I'd run out of food, so I had to go back down. So I'd go back down the mountain. I left all my camping gear up there, assuming that it would be okay. And I go back down the mountain. And all of a sudden, the plantation manager, who had not said a word to me in two months, I knew the only reason to know who he was is because he rode around in a truck with a, a phalanx of machine gun armed bodyguards with him. That's how I figured he must be kind of the manager guy. As soon as I got back down to my alcove, he cornered me and starts yelling at me in Spanish. And the gist I got out of this was that 
I know where you've been. You've been with the rebels on the mountain. Those are bad people. Mala gente, mala gente. He kept saying that. Um, don't have anything to do with them or, or you'll get killed. That's what he was telling me. And so now I'm conflicted, right? Those people were nice to me. And now this guy who hasn't said a word to me in two months is yelling at me about the people that were nice to me. So he finished yelling at me. I'm sure I missed a lot of important details. <laughs> and I, um, I go and I sit down and start packing for my next trip up the mountain, right? And so the next day, I packed even more food so I could stay for longer. And I go back up the mountain. And I get up there, and all my, my tent, my stove, and everything's perfect. No one had touched anything. And there wasn't anybody there. I couldn't find anybody. And finally, I saw someone kind of run between two huts or something. I was like, OK, there's someone over there. No one brought me any dead snakes. I ate my rice all by myself. Uh, dark came. I went out and looked for frogs. Then um, next morning, I woke up and looked around. And still, no people except once when I see someone zip between the hut. And I spent the day out walking around. And while I was hiking, I realized I said, something changed, OK? Uh, I think somebody told these people that I wasn't who I said I was. That's what it felt like. And I kept thinking about it by myself, just thinking. And I finally realized, I said, you know, maybe I'm a CIA agent with the lamest cover story ever, <laughs> looking for frogs, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they haven't tried that one in Syria. And, I, um, and then, I, then I suddenly realized, I said, OK, but I've got to go. I mean, that, I was, of course, uncomfortable and, and unnerved. But also, I realized I was also being completely disruptive of this village. Clearly, they were hiding from me. The whole time I was there, they wouldn't come out of their, they'd either gone or they wouldn't come out of their huts. I didn't know where anybody was. And so I realized this is just not OK. So reluctantly, I decided I've got to leave this study site and go down the mountain and not come back up here. It took me three trips to get all my stuff up there. Um, I went down in one trip, so I left everything that I thought naively might be useful to people. Uh, maybe it's still sitting there 30 years later. I don't know. Um, and I'm walking down the mountain all day thinking about this and um, realizing, I said, something's going on here. People are scared of something. And whatever that is, it's bigger than me. And I started thinking back through other things that had happened in the summer that I hadn't really been able to figure out. Like um, on the drive out to the plantation, the, um, the machete-hacked body that was on the side of the road that no one stopped for, including our truck or the truck behind us. I thought, no one stopped. And that's a horrible thing to see, right? And I thought about the... Um, one day, the trail stopped at a river, and it came out the river opening. And there was a whole group of women in the, standing in the river washing their laundry. And as soon as they saw me, they bolted out of the river. The ones that had babies grabbed the babies off the bank and ran, letting all their family's clothing wash downstream. And I thought, that's not OK. That's unnerving. And then while I'm thinking about this, is it, and, and I'm still very close to the village. I decided it was, too, um, it was too late to try to make it down the mountain. So I'm going to spend one more night there. And I'm definitely leaving the next morning. So I'm still trying to figure out where the village is on my illegal map, right? And so I go up into the cloud forest. And I'm trying to look out and get this, my view on this big lake that I thought I might be able to see. If I could see the lake, then I could draw an angle and figure out where it was on the mountain. And so I climb up on this big, huge fallen tree, trying to look out through the foliage. And while I'm looking, the 
rotting bark on this tree slipped off, sloughed off of the trunk, and I fell, a really, really bad fall. And I fell down, and I'm laying in the leaf litter, doing a mental check, see kind of what's broken. And amazingly, as far as I can tell, nothing was broken. And I thought, but I had a machete in my hand, and I don't know where it is right now. And uh, so I sat up slowly and looked around. I found my machete, and when I went to pick it up, um, this big gash in my hand, my entire knuckle bone popped out of my hand. And like, like the expedition leader, swashbuckling hero I wanted to be, I passed out. Boom. <laughs> Instantly faded, like a cadaver in the leaf litter. Um, Rip Van Winkle, the whole thing, you know. Um, I don't know how long I was passed out, but it, was, it probably wasn't very long. But it shook me up pretty badly. And I woke up and I said, you know, quite literally, I can't overemphasize this, nobody in the world knows where I am right now. And that's not a good idea. So I went back to my camp, sitting in there now really badly shaken up and, and realizing I got to get out of this village. And then it started to rain right at sunset. There was no marimba, of course, nothing like that was happening. But it's raining and it's like, oh, dude, the frogs are out. I got to go catch frogs, right? <laughs> so I put my, my wrecked hand in a plastic bag and kind of tie it off with something. I figure I could kind of baseball mitt some frogs with that. And I go out with my big, powerful headlamp, and I'm looking for frogs and found some interesting animals. And on the way back, it really started raining super hard. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning or so now. And if you wear glasses, you know, when it's raining, you can only look straight down, <laughs> even with a hat. And so I'm looking straight down, and along the way, I, um, I missed a fork in the trail that I didn't really know about. And so instead of going to my camp, it took me right down smack into the middle of the village. So there I am at 1.30 in the morning with this big powerful headlamp looking around and you know shining through the, the wooden slats of all these huts. And I could hear people inside becoming disturbed and I thought, oh, I'm waking everybody up. This is so rude. And then I started hearing the nervous tinging of machetes, which is a, not a pleasant sound. And then I heard a gun cock and then I saw a barrel come through the, the slats and I realized, okay, this is, not, this is beyond rude here. Okay, this is a whole different problem. And I, um, so the only thing I could think of to do, and I will never forget this for the rest of my life, because I'm convinced it saved my life, was to scream at the top of my lungs, gringo perdido, no hay problema, gringo perdido, no hay problema, rana, sapo, culebra. That translates into lost white dude, not a problem. Frog, lizard, snake. That's all I could say. And then I turned and ran through a, a space between two huts and clawed my way up in the rain through this cornfield and finally found my, my tent and lay there just absolutely petrified at this point, convinced that the village was going to come kill me in my tent. And my hands throbbing and all messed up. And the next morning I bolted down and started thinking again about the, the body on the side of the road and the women in the river and what everyone was so afraid of. And... When I got back at the end of the summer, I was there for three months, and when I got back at the end of the summer, I realized maybe I, instead of just reading about the biology of this area, maybe I should read about the socio-political history of Guatemala, which I had not done. And uh, this war that had been mentioned casually, uh, I was in the middle of it. I thought wars looked like World War II. Where's the tanks? Where's the front line? No, I didn't know what genocide looks like, and I was in the middle of it the entire time. And... Um, 
So I got my herpetological expedition. I got my adventure. Um, I got everything I asked for, but I also learned a whole hell of a lot more than I bargained for on that trip. And so I'm Gringo Perdido. Nice to meet you. That was Joseph R. Mendelssohn III. Joseph has been studying amphibians and reptiles for more than 30 years, concentrating mostly on Mexico and Central America. Most of his work has involved evolutionary studies and taxonomy, including the discovery and naming of about 40 new species. Formerly an associate professor in biology at Utah State University, he is currently director of research at Zoo Atlanta and adjunct associate professor of biology at Georgia Tech University, where he teaches regularly. He is also past president of the Society for the Study of Amphibians and Reptiles, the world's largest professional herpetological society. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, the Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Audrey Kearns, Joseph Scrimshaw, Mesa Salida, and Emma Yarbrough, with help from me, Aaron Barker, Shane Hanlon, and Kelly Vinyl. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Lyric Hyperion and the Highland Inn and Ballroom for hosting these shows, and to all of the new friends that we've made this year. Thanks for listening. <laughs>